Hi, everybody. This is Dan Walker. Welcome to another edition of U.S. Law Radio. If you're an employer, large or small, public or private, you probably know that retaliation is a real and costly threat. What you might not know is that a recent ruling has just made the threat even more of a problem. Here to explain is U.S. Law member Claudia Williams, a partner at Thomas Thomas & Hafer in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Claudia, welcome into U.S. Law Radio. Thank you so much. Claudia, as we mentioned a few seconds ago, there are some important new developments in retaliation that we should really be aware of. But first, for the uninitiated, give us a high-level primer on retaliation. Well, there are a number of laws that make it illegal to hire, fire, demote, harass, or otherwise, quote, retaliate against people because they've engaged in some protected activity. There's Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, sex, national origin. The Age Discrimination and Employment Act prohibits discrimination on the basis of age. The Americans with Disabilities Act prohibits discrimination on the basis of disability. So we have this alphabet soup of employment laws that all prohibit retaliation. The protected conduct, protected activity, could be anything from filing a charge of discrimination, from going to the employer and speaking out against something you believe that they're doing in violation of the law. It could be assisting in the investigation of somebody else's charge. So if an employee gets a call from the EEOC and provides information in response to that call because a coworker has filed the charge, that activity is protected. Participating internally in an investigation. So Joe goes and complains to Supervisor Sam, and Supervisor Sam calls in Todd to ask Todd some questions about Joe's complaint. Anything that Todd says, his participation in that internal investigation is also considered protected activity. And what an employer can't do is take adverse employment actions against the people who engaged in protected activity. Well, so what's an adverse employment action? It could be firing, which is, you know, the most obvious of adverse actions because you're now out of a job. But it could also be changing somebody from first shift to third shift as a punitive measure not because the employee requested it. And so now you've got somebody who's used to being on day shift is now pulling an all-night shift. That could be an adverse employment action. It could be an involuntary transfer to a position in a location far, far away from where they currently are. It could be anything that alters the scope of the job. So if somebody is performing sort of a white-collar function and they're then made to do hard labor, manual labor, that's an adverse employment action. So Employer conduct and the type of conduct is very particular, and the law says, look, you have an applicant or an employee who engages in protected activity, you can't take bad action against them is the gist of retaliation. And many states have individual laws that mirror the federal laws, and so it's a state law issue as well. Whew, a lot of retaliation going on out there, huh? There, well, I'm on the defense side of the V in litigation, so I'll say there's a lot of alleged retaliation going on out there. <laughs> That's what I meant to say, alleged. <laughs> and the word discrimination seems to go hand-in-hand hand with retaliation, doesn't it? It does, because, and here's the interesting twist of that, too. So employee comes in and says, you know, you discriminated against me on the basis of my age. I was most qualified for that promotion. You didn't give me the promotion. I'm 55 years old, and you gave it to the 28-year-old. And you only did that because of my age. So let's say that employee makes that complaint, and right after that, employee gets fired entirely. Well, let's say employer had a legitimate reason for providing the promotion to the 28-year-old employee. 
a retaliation claim can survive independent of the underlying discrimination claims. They don't actually have to prove that actual discrimination occurred in order for the retaliation claim to go forward and to be successful. And it's the retaliation claims that are the big money payouts because juries don't like to see employees get in trouble or reprimanded or lose their jobs because they engaged in the protected activity. It sends a bad message to them. They don't like how it feels when they're hearing it, and they're going to send a message right back to the employers who are doing it. Okay, so retaliation's out there, and it can be costly. But there's breaking news that we need to know about. There is. There's a new case. The Supreme Court just handed down a decision in a case called Thompson versus North American Stainless, And this is really the first case where we have somebody who was neither the employee nor the applicant who filed a charge of discrimination and got fired, lost his job as a result of this other person's charge of discrimination. What happened was Eric Thompson and his fiancée, Miriam Regalado, were both employees at North American Stainless. In February of 2003, the EEOC informed North American Stainless that Regalado had filed a charge of sex discrimination. Three weeks later, North American Stainless fires her fiancé, Eric Thompson. So Thompson filed a charge of retaliation with the EEOC and said, look, they only fired me because my fiancé fired a charge of discrimination. I didn't do anything. And Thompson kept pushing because he lost at the trial court level. He lost at the district court level. They granted summary judgment in favor of the employer saying, look, Title VII, which is the basis for the sex discrimination claim, doesn't allow third-party retaliation. And then he appealed to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, and he lost there too. So then he appealed to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court took a look at this and said, look, the anti-retaliation provisions of Title VII are supposed to be construed in order to cover a broad range of employer conduct. The whole purpose is that we're supposed to send the message that employers shouldn't engage in conduct which dissuades reasonable workers from either making or supporting a charge of discrimination. That's the underlying purpose of the anti-retaliation provision. So the Supreme Court said, look, the firing of Eric Thompson, the fiancé, may very well violate Title VII because, you know, you're firing somebody for no other reason than your fiancé filed a charge of discrimination. People will sit back and look at that and say, gosh, that means if my husband or wife, you know, if we're coworkers at the same place and he or she files a charge or makes some sort of complaint, I could lose my job. So it would dissuade the person from making a complaint or filing a charge. So he satisfied that first prong. And then the court said, well, look, does Thompson have standing to sue? The very important language in Title VII is that it says, Any person claiming to be aggrieved can bring a civil action. So Title VII doesn't say an employee or applicant can bring an action. It says any person who's been harmed by the conduct that we prohibit can bring an action. And then the question is whether they fall within the the zone of interest that were meant to be protected by the statute. So the court said, look, Thompson fits in here because, first of all, he was an employee of North American Steel. Title VII was enacted to protect employees from unlawful actions, and he was not, quote, an accidental victim of retaliation. He wasn't some collateral damage of the unlawful act because injuring him was the way North American Steel wanted to hurt Regalado. So they got to her through her fiancé. So he wasn't just some incidental collateral damage to all this. So they said, look, you have standing to sue Eric Thompson, and they send the case back down to the district court, and now he very likely will go to trial on this claim. 
Wow, quite a journey. So how did all this shake out? The big outcome from this is that the Supreme Court broadly extended the Title VII retaliation protection to third-party employees. It's clear from this opinion that family members or a fiancé, for example, are protected. They're protected against retaliatory conduct. But what the Supreme Court didn't do is create a definitive bright-line rule that says, all right, if you are related to the nth degree or you have been best friends with this person for 25 years, you know, then you fit within the sphere of protection. What they said was, look, a firing of a close family member will almost always qualify for protection, but the firing of a mere acquaintance probably will not. So, you know, if it's just somebody you're casually acquainted with, you're probably not going to be protected from retaliation but they're going to have to address it on a case-by-case basis. And I think we're going to see a lot more litigation of who's entitled to the protection, how closely acquainted or related are you to the individual who engaged in protected activity. And so it has opened up, you know, a huge scope of potential plaintiffs. And employers really need to sit back because in some jurisdictions, familial status or marital status aren't protected categories, but They are now through this retaliation, anti-retaliation decision that the Supreme Court handed down. It's a a big shift in favor of plaintiffs in this category. Well, now that you've got employers losing sleep and looking over their shoulders in fear of a retaliation suit, what's your advice to keep them out of trouble? Well, it always goes back to educating. If employers are not aware of who may be protected from unlawful retaliation, then they don't have the ability to really evaluate a decision that they're making. And so it starts with going to the first-line supervisors because the Supreme Court also came out with a new decision that involves this cat's paw theory of liability. And this is just within the past couple of weeks. And what they said was, look, even if the person who made the decision had no unlawful intent or purpose, if they got information that served as the basis for the decision from somebody with an ax to grind, then the employer can be liable. So if Supervisor Sam wants to fire Regalado's fiancé and goes to his immediate supervisor who makes the ultimate decision and provides a whole bunch of relatively logical reasons for a disciplinary action against fiancé Eric Thompson, and Supervisor Sam's supervisor takes action against Eric Thompson because everything seems to be in order and it seems like conduct that's worthy of the appropriate disciplinary action, Well, they're not off the hook. It used to be that you could rely on the ultimate decision maker and the lack of bias in the ultimate decision maker, but they're really examining decision making in a multi-step process. And so any first-line supervisor, people who are responsible for evaluations, people who are responsible for making recommendations for disciplinary action, even if they don't have the ultimate authority to make the decision, they need to understand that they need to have a proper basis for any recommended action that they're seeking from their supervisors. So it's really a question of education and understanding and documentation. One of the problems we always have is that there's a lack of documentation to support whatever decision was making. So it's really about going back to basics. Educate, understand, and document. Good advice. Okay, Claudia, we'll let you get back to it. What's your final word everybody listening in? Well, You know, I think if you walk away with one thing from this, it should be to go back and look at your policies, make sure that your policies are consistent with the current state of the law, and then engage in the training that you need to do to make sure your employees and your supervisors understand what those policies mean. 
employers need to be able to rely on the people who are making the decisions and the people who are making the decisions need to understand when and when they cannot make certain decisions. So it's really about going back and conducting a review and doing the necessary education. Claudia Williams, so glad you could stop by and share your retaliation expertise with us here on U.S. Law Radio. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. That's it, folks. We're out of time. U.S. Law Radio is produced by Roger Yaffe. Send your comments and show ideas his way because he loves to hear from you. This edition of U.S. Law Radio has been brought to you by SCA Limited, forensic engineering and origin cause experts working nationwide since 1970. And by Ringler Associates. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided injured parties and their attorneys with the finest structured settlement services. This is Dan Walker. Thanks for listening in, folks. We'll see you again next time for another fresh edition of U.S. Law Radio.